Okay, Genesis 38. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, those of you who are here Sunday morning, we already studied the first 11 verses. We're going to quickly kind of go through them to get some context of where we are, answer a couple questions, and then move on. But verse 2 tells us that Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and he went into her. Now, I've since studying a little further down in the chapter, discovered that her name wasn't Shua. The Canaanite's name was Shua. We don't know what her name was. In fact, the Bible never tells us the name of this Canaanite woman that Judah takes for a wife. All we know is her dad's name is Shua. Well, Judah took her and went into her, verse 3, so she conceived and bore a son, and she named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chizib that she bore him. Verse 6. <laughs> anyway, you thinking about Onan the Barbarian? Is that what you're thinking? Chizib. Sounds like Chizib. Yeah. It works. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar is a name to be aware of, a name to circle, a name to keep your eye on. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, what's the deal with the brother-in-law's duty? We, we quickly breeze by this on Sunday morning, but it's called the Leverite Law. The Leverite Law. Later it was called that. It's actually from the Latin word levir, which means literally brother-in-law. So it's this law, this idea, this custom that the brother-in-law, if a brother died and was married, if he was the firstborn would go and, and take his wife for his own bride and bear children with her. Now that's a little confusing for us. We look at this and we think, okay, well maybe that was a pagan custom. But reality tells us in Deuteronomy 25 that God ordained this for Israel in the Mosaic Law. In fact, flip in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 25. Let's take a quick look at that to understand it. Deuteronomy 25. Besides, it's a little bit funny what God determines here. Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, no, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it's the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 5 and reading through verse 10. It's one of the laws, the Mosaic laws. We're told, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother. Now, some of you may think, hey, my brother-in-law is a strange man. I wouldn't want him coming into me. But, verse 6 tells us, it shall be the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire... Now listen to this. This is great. If the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull off his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. This is a law. They take the sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called, quote, the house of him whose sandal is removed. <laughs> This is what they did. The house of him whose sandal was removed. It was a mark of shame. Now, some things to understand about this custom that later became a law that God ordained for Israel. First of all, the law presupposed a few things. This is important to know. It presupposed that the brothers lived together as joint heirs. So it's not just any brother, it's a brother that they're sharing the property, they're sharing the inheritance together. And in this case, the one brother has an obligation to his other brother who dies to take his brother's wife and bear a child and name that child his brother's name. So that the name will continue in Israel. It, supposed, it presupposes that the brothers live together as a joint heir, also that the dead brother died before leaving a male heir. 
If there was already a son for the brother who died, this was null and void. It didn't work. It didn't fit. Okay? Furthermore, it presupposes the living brother is not already married. Now, it doesn't say that right here in the law. But Deuteronomy 17.17 tells us God says polygamy shall not happen. It's not allowed. Okay? So in another place, he disallows polygamy. So in this place, it's got to be consistent. God's laws are always consistent. They always fit together, whether we understand that or not. And there are times we don't. We'll look at one thing God says here and something He says over here and say, how does that work? The reality is, and the assumption that I would encourage you to make, is always God's law is consistent. My understanding is not. I may not get it right at first. I may not understand how this works together, but assume that God's laws do fit. And ultimately you'll discover that they do. They do. Uh, furthermore, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9, Jesus points out God's intention for marriage. And he points it out using the creation of Adam and Eve. And Jesus says, hey, it was evident from the beginning because God created one man and one woman and put them together in the garden because of this original creation. You see God's plan for marriage. He didn't create Adam and Eve and Bertha. It was Adam and Eve. It wasn't Adam and Steve. It wasn't Adam and, and, and Joey and Eve. It was Adam and Eve. One man, one woman. This was the design. That's another thing to understand about God's laws is the design of God's laws fits in nature. His very creation expresses and reveals to us his laws and his determinations. So the law presupposed all these things. Furthermore, this Leverite law provided for the wife of the deceased husband. And we're going to come back to this point several times tonight. But God cares about his daughters. He cares about his girls. Now, some people will read the Bible and say it's chauvinistic or it's male-dominated. The reality is, if you truly read the Bible, you will discover how much God loves his daughters as well as his sons. How much he provides for his daughters as well as his sons. And even with this law, he provides that the woman not be left alone, not be left empty, not be left childless. He provides for the wife of the deceased husband. And number three, the law protected the family line. It protected the family line, saying that this firstborn son, now of the brother of the one who died, this firstborn son now will bear the name of the one who died. Why was this so important? Why did it matter in Israel that the name was continued, that the name went on? Remember what the Lord promised Abraham. Back in Genesis 22, verse 17, he said, Abraham, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The seed, the lineage, was incredibly important in Israel. And to be a part of that and to not be lost from that was very important in Israel. And so God provided for this in this law. Now, the importance of this law was understood very well among the Jews, even all the way up to Jesus' time. Flip over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. This is a great little story, one of many, where Jesus is being approached by some Jewish leaders, in this case, Sadducees. And the Sadducees want to trip Jesus up. They think they can outwit him, and so they bring him this situation. Matthew chapter 22, verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no children left his wife to his brother. And so also the second and the third, on down to the seventh, and last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, which they didn't believe in, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her, and they thought they had him. Never think you've got Jesus. Never think you have God outwitted. They thought they did, and I love this answer. He said to them, verse 29, Well, you're mistaken. Not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God, which I submit to you is one of the greatest problems in the church and in the world today. 
our misunderstandings, our problems, our concerns, our frustrations, our doubts with the Lord are because we don't understand the Scripture. Nor do we understand the power of God. The more in our lives we get it, understand the Scriptures and the power of God, the less we doubt, honestly. The less concerned we are. The less we struggle with the things of God, the more we understand the Scriptures. Verse 30, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You see, to the Lord Jesus, the most important thing here wasn't the law. It was the resurrection. It was the resurrection. His response to the Sadducees was not, well, let me help you work through the law, the legal aspect and how that works out. His response was, you're missing the point. You're sitting here bringing me this thing to try and outwit me. The deal is, you're missing the resurrection. There is a resurrection. And in that resurrection, a man and a woman, there, there's no need for marriage. I, I, you know, I think from time to time about what it's going to be like. You need to look back to Genesis 38. I think about what it's going to be like when the resurrection happens and when we are all in heaven. Now, in our world in which we live right now, the greatest, most close form of intimacy that two people can share would be a man and a woman in marriage. Would you agree with me on that? That it doesn't, you can't get more intimate than in that setting between the man and the woman. That is the closest intimacy we have. In the resurrection, and, and if you think, well, wow, I don't want to lose that. If you have a, a strong marriage and you think, I don't, I'd like to be with my spouse, e even in heaven. Here's the reality, folks. What you're going to, you're not going to lose that. You're going to gain intimacy beyond comprehension. We will all share an intimacy that is deeper, more wonderful, and greater than that of a husband and wife in the resurrection. Because finally we will all be God's family. And we will share and, and, and have that closeness. Unlike anything we can experience right now, Jesus says to these guys, man, it's the resurrection that's important. Not your laws. The laws work out. But the resurrection, that's the bottom line. Well, back to Genesis 38. Verse 9 tells us that Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. This Leverite law, he, he knew it wouldn't be his son, it'd be his brother's son. And so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But he did, what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life also. And then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too might die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. This is the last thing I want you to note before we move on. And it's something that I didn't even see until a friend shared it just yesterday. And that's the fact that God does care so much about his daughters. So we have yet another situation here in the Bible. The first was Hagar, where we saw God loving and caring for this woman who had been cast out, even though she wasn't part of the plan, even though she was just a servant girl that Abraham went into to bear a child with in his flesh. That was a huge mistake. It was a sin, but God cared for Hagar, looked out for her. And in the same way he does this for Tamar, if you look back, Ur is taken out. He's killed. Onan is taken out and killed. I don't know what Ur was doing that was so wicked, but I know that Onan was abusing Tamar. He was abusing her and using her for his own physical pleasure and not giving her what every woman, especially in those days, was longing for, and that was offspring, a child. To be without child in this day was to be shameful. And so that was her greatest desire, and Onan was going in and getting all of his desires fulfilled while not giving her what she needed, what she desired, what she longed for. And God took him out. Tamar matters to the Lord in ways, by the way, that are much greater than we have even seen so far. The Lord cares for his daughters. We will see this more clearly tonight. Think about this. Who is most affected by a man's wickedness? His wife is. 
Who is most affected by a man's sin of any kind? A married man, it's his wife who has to deal with it, bear with it, work through it. Or was an evil husband, Onan was a user, and God wouldn't have it. Now, I think this care and concern for his daughters was largely missed among people until Jesus came along. And what Jesus did was wonderful in revealing the Father's love for his girls. He esteemed them. He elevated their position. He expressed care and concern for the women as well as the men. And you may recall that the first to hear that Jesus was the Messiah was a woman in John 4. The first one to see Jesus resurrected again was a woman, Mary Magdalene in John 20. And Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now I don't have time to really get into it heavily tonight. But God has also given us roles, male and female roles, that when we accept and live out, we find our greatest joy. We both, all, male and female, have positions before God. And if we accept the balance of male and female in this relationship, it works out beautifully. Trouble is, in this passage, people are going to walk all over it. So let's read on. Verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. Now, in this chapter, she's the third one to die. Ur dies, Onan dies, and now the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, dies. He's lost two sons and a wife. And this is an ugly situation. Judah delves into the pagan world. He goes a place that he ought not go, and in return he ends up with two dead sons and a dead wife. And it reminds me, folks, that outside of Christ, outside of the will of God, there is only death to look forward to. But in Christ... There is nothing but life. Colossians 3 verse 1 tells us, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life, read that again, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Christ is our life. He's the whole thing. Back to verse 12. So this wife of Judah dies. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up with his sheep, to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. So Hira's back in the picture. What's going on here is Judah goes through a mourning period. And he's beginning to come out of that mourning period. period and, and Hira says, hey, why don't you come with me up to the sheep shearing festival? That's what was going on. Annually in Timnah, there was a sheep shearing festival. They went up, they shared the sheep, and then they partied. They celebrated. And it was an annual deal. So Hira comes up to Judah and says, let's go. Come on, you need some cheering up. So once again, Judah is with his pagan pal, Hira. Verse 13. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as, as a wife. So now we come back to Tamar. Tamar at this time has been left out to dry. And what does she do? Read on, verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. Now listen to this. Tamar was dressed for the part. She dressed herself for a role purposefully. Tamar at this point has seen that Sheila has grown up and has not been given to her as a husband. She is in shame in widow's garments living in her father's house. And Judah has not followed through with his responsibility to her as a father-in-law by providing another husband. And so she's stuck there. She's left there. And Tamar deceitfully devises a plan. And she dresses herself as a prostitute. But when she does it, it's not as a common street hooker. Listen to this. The word harlot in verse 15 is zana, which means, interestingly, to commit adultery or to commit idolatry. Because at the time, idolatry and adultery were often one and the same thing. Idolatry involved adultery, and adultery involved idolatry 
You've heard us refer to or we've talked about the temple prostitutes. In fact, down in verses 21 and 22, she is referred to as a temple prostitute, which is the Hebrew word Kadesha, and Kadesha means consecrated. Consecrated. A consecrated prostitute. Now, you may say, all right, Rick, so what's the big deal? She's either a temple prostitute or a hooker. What's the difference? And the difference is in the hooking. Okay? If she's a hooker just for a hooker's sake, then what she's looking for is the cash that she can get from hooking. But if she's a temple prostitute, it's a whole different ball of wax. It's a whole different game that is being played. This was, and I'll put it this way, this was Canaanite evangelism. This is the way they did it. They didn't go door knocking. They didn't pass out tracts. They didn't send an evangelist out to preach the pagan idolatry. They dressed up temple prostitutes. And men, back as far as then and all the way up to present day, saw the women dressed for it and were enticed, were lured in, were drawn into paganism by the temple prostitution. Don't assume that evangelism only rests in the hands of Christians. Now, actually, let me let me clarify this a little bit. Evangelism, by definition, definition does rest only in the hands of Christians because evangelism means the preaching of good news. But there's another kind of evangelism, another kind of selling that goes on, alluring and attracting and enticing. Satan is working very hard in the world to lure and entice all people in his direction. In the same way that the temple prostitutes did of the Canaanites, so Satan today is still trying to cleverly disguise the bad news. And people don't know what the bad news is until they are lured into it, as Judah is about to find out. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. The message of the world... The message of Satan is bad news evangelism. But the message of Christ is different. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, We are not like the many, peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So back to our story. Tamar is dressed as a temple prostitute and Judah gets hooked. Verse 16. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. It gets kind of sordid here. What's interesting is that he says, I'll pay you a young goat or a kid. And ultimately she gets pregnant and has two kids for him. This was not Judah's plan. He had no idea what he was doing. But notice what she asks for here. And consider this. She asked for his seal, his cord, and his staff. Tamar's a smart girl. His seal, his cord, and his staff. First of all here, the seal was a sign of personal identity. It was typically a personalized ring or a signet of some kind that was used by the men in the day in business transactions and correspondence. And a man would take his seal and he could stamp it into hot wax or press it into parchment. It was our, it's our present day equivalent of a signature. We sign our name to things, they would use the signet ring or the seal to seal the deal. That's where it comes from. So the seal was the sign of personal identity. Secondly, the cord was a symbol of possessions. It was a symbol of possessions or wealth. Typically the cord was a chain or a bracelet connected to the seal and the degree of its design indicated the wealth of the person. If it had a lot of gold in it, if it was richly woven fabric in the cord, well it indicated great wealth. Or if it was less, it indicated less wealth. But now you've got not only the seal, which indicates his person, but the cord, which indicates his possessions. And number three, the staff. The staff was the standard of his position. 
It revealed his position, a symbol of his position. It often bore the insignia of the seal itself, and it indicated the power or the position of the person, and it does the same thing today. If you have a staff, you've got power. Have my people call your people, and our people will set up lunch together. You know, I've got a staff. The more people I have working for me, well, that indicates my position, and in this case, the seal, the cord, the staff. She asked for these three things. Now, what does all this mean? It means that Tamar is seeking to take hold of Judah's person. To take hold of his possessions. To get a hold of his position. And it's not coincidental that this is exactly what happens to a man when he commits sexual immorality. Or a woman for that matter. When we engage in such things as prostitution or sexual immorality, we have to understand, as we talked about on Sunday, the cost is high. The price is the person and the possessions and the position. Think about how quickly things are lost. Don't believe me? Let me give you two words to give you a graphic illustration of what happens. Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant. A man of stature, of position, a well-liked person who has gone through tremendous loss for one night. Less than that. Half an hour of pleasure. And what happened in that hotel room is still up to the courts to decide. But the fact is, whatever the outcome, is that he engaged in sexual immorality that has cost him dearly. And regardless of what the courts say, he will always have that blight on his name. His person has been marred. His possessions are being incredibly affected. His position is very tenuous. All the contracts that he had, the commercial contracts, gone. I mean, he can still play basketball right now, but that's about it. One night, one act. Who would have thought it would come to this? And this behavior, and I stop and mention this because it's been acted upon over and over and over and over in human history, all for a night or an evening or an hour or two of pleasure, and by the way, Beth Moore states that the problem of sexual immorality is no longer limited to men because now for the first time, women are actually turning up addicted to pornography. I heard that and I thought, what? That's bizarre. Not that women haven't engaged in sexual immorality in the past or in history. Of course they have. But, but the visual thing, the pornography has always been a problem associated with men, not women. Not any longer. The internet porn that we hear so much about is affecting male and female to a dramatic level in our country. It's frightening to see what's going on. Now, I've got to stop and point something out here about adultery and sex outside of marriage, which is one and the same thing. It's a passage that we would do well to have tucked in our hearts. And you may say, hey, I've got a great marriage. I would never be involved in something like that. Or you may say, I, I am too moral a person. I would never get drawn down that pathway. Turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. There is great wisdom. Great wisdom in not assuming that we have strength that we may or may not have. There's great wisdom in the whole idea of st staying as far back from the edge of sin as possible as opposed to approaching sin. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27. Listen to what Solomon writes. Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. Verse 32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find and his reproach will not be blotted out. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes and not be burned? Can we approach sin and, and walk away unscathed? 
it's an interesting picture that Solomon gives us. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? We Right now, if on the property it's being totally cleared over here for our house, it's, it's exciting to watch and to see. But one of the problems that we have is that a burn van is on. And all the trees that they're clearing, normally they take, they take all the stumps and they move them to the middle of the property and they burn them right there and you're good to go. Well, we've got a burn van, so we're going to have to do it later. So we have to find a place on our property to move all that stuff further up and burn it. The sad part is, and Cheryl and I were talking about this just last night, that as that stuff burns, it's going to affect a lot of other trees that we had hoped to save but may not survive the burning because of the sheer heat. Because it gets so hot. And it's the same thing in our sin, that as we approach sins, toy with sins, go places, do things, act in such a way where we say, hey, I'm not sinning, I'm just standing close. Pornography is a picture of that, and I, I believe pornography is absolutely a sin. But with internet pornography, it comes up on the screen, and I'll just, I'll just spend a minute here. I'm not sinning, I'm not acting on anything, just going to, and you cannot help but be burned. We will be burned as sin approaches us. In all the years that I did youth ministry, the question that always came up from kids was, how far is too far? When we talk about sex specifically, they always wanted to know, what's the line? Tell me where the line is so I can go right up to it and get as close as possible without actually sinning. The problem is it's the wrong question. It's not how far is too far. How far can I go? It's how far away can I stay? How close to the Lord can I live my life? If we are seeking to live our lives as close to the Lord as possible, then you know what becomes a non-issue? Sin does. Sin does. Flip over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We read a little bit of this Sunday, but I want to explain it a bit further. 1 John 5.16 John writes, and follow this closely. He writes, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Then John says, There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. And we read that Sunday and I pointed out, John's saying, there is a sin that is a sin of death, a point of no return. And John's saying, I'm not saying pray for that person. Now several people reacted. I had some, some interesting conversations afterward about, wait a minute, so we just don't pray for someone? Shouldn't we pray for someone all the way, to, I mean, as, as long as we have breath? Absolutely. Absolutely. But John is talking about here something, a sin that has led to death. Not just a sin leading to death, but a sin that causes death. A sin that brings about absolute depravity. He goes on, listen, he explains it in verse 17. He says, all unrighteousness is sin. Guess what? All unrighteousness is sin. And guess what? We all experience unrighteousness. All of it is sin. However, he says, there is a sin not leading to death. <laughs> What's he talking about here? A couple of kinds of sins here. He goes on, verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Do you have trouble with that? Anyone else? No one who is born of God sins. Well, I just sinned a couple of days ago. So I guess I'm not born of God. Is that what he's saying? No one who is born of God sins. But he who was born of God he who was born of God, Jesus, keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. What is John saying here? He's dealing with two kinds of sin. He's dealing with lifestyle sin, and he's dealing with the reality of daily, day-to-day, -day, occasional sin that all people commit. And in the one case, he says, hey, if someone sins, you fall, you fail, Pray, and you can be forgiven. You are forgiven. Grace does cover you. But that's occasional sin that we all deal with in our lives. However, there is a sin leading to death. It is a sin of lifestyle. It's saying, I choose to live my life in open rebellion to God. And that's the type of person that John says, no one who is born of God sins this lifestyle sin. 
No one who is born of God chooses to live in open rebellion to the Father. You can't. You can't be born of God on the one hand and live in open rebellion on the other hand. It, it can't work. You can't put the two together. You are either living for God, even if you are failing from time to time, or you're living against Him. And John says, He who was born of God, Jesus keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And he says, verse 19, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ, and this is the true God and eternal life. The problem is when we come at this verse, we come at it from a negative standpoint and go, wow, he's talking about sin and I kind of feel guilty now. And John isn't. John is sharing what he's sharing as an encouragement to us. Saying, listen, you are of God. You are born of God. Jesus keeps you. You're protected from the sin of the enemy. Well, let's go back to Genesis 38, verse 19. Sin is tricky stuff. While you're flipping back there, one of the discussions that I had on Sunday morning was, is there a place in life where sin becomes a, a I can't return, or is it I won't return? I've become so depraved that I literally can't return. And I said in the message Sunday, there is a place where you cannot return. And it makes us uncomfortable to talk like that, because we always want to have hope. That no matter how bad a person is, that they can return. The reality is in Scripture, it's both. There is a place that you cannot return from because you will not return. And there is a plan, I'm not saying you. There is a place where a person can't return from because they won't return from it. And they won't return from it because they can't return from it. The Bible calls it depravity. It's a place where you are, the heart is so twisted that the Lord knows there is no return. Ur and Onan in, verse, in chapter 38 are pictures of that. These are guys who are at the point of no return. They could not return because they would not return. And they would not return because they could not return. That's hard. Because we want to always hold out that measure of hope. But God knows the heart. He understands it better than we. Well back to our story. Verse 19. Now she has gone in and, and, and Judah has laid with Tamar she's gotten pregnant verse 19 says she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments verse 20 when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite interesting to receive the pledge from the woman's hand he did not find her now Judah has left he's gone away and he sends I would submit the only person he could send he sent Hira he didn't send one of his brothers he didn't send a family member. He didn't send, hey, he didn't say, hey, I, um, I slept with this prostitute up there uh, near Timna. Do you think you can go up and get my stuff for me? He's not sharing that with anybody but Hira, his pagan pal. Because Hira understands. Hey, I'll, I'll take care of it for you, Judah. No problem. Interesting. Hira keeps popping up in this story. And you know what about Hira? In this whole chapter, he never does anything overtly wrong. He's just there. But he seems to be there every single time Judah's getting entangled. He just shows up. He's just a presence who's there. And that is exactly how bad company spoils good morals. That's how it works. That's how Satan works. Satan may not overtly do something bad himself. He just wants to encourage us to. He just wants to draw me in that direction. And what's amazing is when all my sin is hanging out and everything is just a, a big mess around me, where's Satan then? Where is he? That's how it works. Bad company doesn't necessarily look bad. It just corrupts good morals bit by bit and piece by piece. Verse 21, Hira asked the men of, the, of her place, saying, Where's that temple prostitute who was by the road at Naam? And they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and he said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Well, then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. What's Judah doing? Ignore it. Maybe they'll just go away. Let her have it. It's okay. Let's just, maybe we'll just get away with it. I'll just forget it. Folks, we may try to put sin out of our mind. But it always comes around. It always sneaks back. Look at what happens, verse 24. 
Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. And Judah said, look at this, bring her out and let her be burned. It's amazing how bad my sin looks on other people. When someone else commits the sin that I commit, man, I can condemn them for it. As a matter of fact, it seems that the things that I have, that I struggle with, the skeletons in my closet, when I see them on someone else, they're that much worse. You remember the televangelist scandal of the 80s? Remember when all that happened, the Jim Baker scandal? And when Jim Baker was found out, and this hit the news, Jimmy Swaggart called him a cancer on the body of Christ. And it was just a short time after that that we discovered Jimmy Swaggart had a personal problem much worse than Jim Baker's. Same thing, but a whole lot more of it. Judah says, bring her out, let her be burned, let's get her fired. And I would say we need to be awfully careful who we fire. We need to be careful who we burn and how quickly we are ready to burn somebody else for whatever the sin. John chapter 8, and I'll just read this to you. There's a beautiful story you've heard before. A story of Jesus standing there and again up come the Jewish leaders. And they bring up a woman who is caught in adultery. Early in the morning, John 8 verse 2 says, He came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. So a setting like this, you can imagine, they're just being taught, they're sitting around, Jesus is, is expounding the scriptures, and suddenly, right up the middle, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And you remember what Jesus said. Go ahead. Go ahead. Whoever hears without sin, pick up the first stone and let it fly. And one by one, the Bible tells us from oldest to youngest, they walked away. They were so ready to condemn, so ready to convict, so ready to stone her to death. And in the same way, here we see the character of Judah. Oh, this is beautiful. Judah, who had slept with this prostitute who he didn't know, but he knew he had slept with a woman three months before. And now when his daughter-in-law is caught in the act of harlotry, same thing he had been a part of, he wants her burned. Of course, it might solve a little problem for him. Kind of take care of Tamar. Doesn't have to worry about giving her to Sheila and having Sheila die too, like Ur and Onan. Doesn't have to worry about his responsibility. He can just put himself out of his misery. But what he doesn't realize is that his sin is about to come around. Look at verse 25. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Well, Judah recognized them and he said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not have relations with her again. Well, God bless Judah. That's wonderful. That's great, Judah. The truth finally outs Judah's sin. He says, She's more righteous than I, and he doesn't say, Because I committed adultery too. Because I was just with a harlot, and turns out it was her. I'm as guilty sexually as she is. No, he says... Boy, she's more righteous than I am because I withheld my son. It's amazing. You know how with, with kids, when they get in trouble, they only give you as much as they know that you know. They only give as much as they have to, you know. They don't want to give the full picture. And, and you know, as you push forward to understand more and more of the truth, as the truth begins to come out, they give a little more. That's, that's human nature. We're not going to reveal the worst of the sin. We'll just reveal that which we have to and try and keep the rest to ourselves. Yeah, I treated her badly. I, I didn't give her. I didn't give her to my son, so she's more righteous than I am. Judah, you slept with her. You did the same thing from the male side of things that she did from the female side of things. You were in the same boat. But he was ready to flame her, ready to fry her. He didn't even admit it. He just skirts the issue. It's interesting. He never really gets it. He never gets it. The Bible says that after all of this, he did not have relations with her again. Well, that's a mercy. Way to go, Judah. Proud of you there. Way to show restraint. You know, that phrase, did not have sexual relations with her again, there's another way to read that. The word have relations is just no. 
It's used interchangeably. It is used to refer to sexual relations in the Bible, but it's also just to refer to relationship. And it seems to me that not only did he not have relations with her again, but he didn't know her again. He said, okay, fine, all right, you know. <laughs> You're bad, I'm bad, we're done. And he had nothing else to do with her. But God still had a plan. God still had use, amazing use for this woman. Watch how this ends. This is the best part of the whole thing. Verse 27. It came about at that time that she was giving birth, and behold, there were twins in her womb. Does that ring a bell? Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand. Pop. <laughs> and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, Hey, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zira. Now this is an incredible little story. Twins in the womb, the time of birth comes and one of the twins pops his little hand out and the maid there says, okay, wraps the scarlet thread, that we'll know who it is, and, and, but he doesn't come out. He pulls back in. This is a terrible birth experience, ladies. And somehow in the birth canal, the other twin forces his way around and comes out first. And then the twin with the scarlet thread around his wrist. But listen to this. This story is not in here to help us look back at Jacob and Esau, who were also twins fighting in the womb. It's not about looking behind us at an old story. This story is here to help us look ahead. To help us prophetically look forward to something else that happened. And this is just stunning to me. It's amazing. Zira is partially born. And then he's pulled back into the womb. And then Perez breaks out first. Perez means breach or breaking out. Perez means breaking out. Now hold that thought. What is on the wrist of the baby that comes out first? Or second, actually. The wrist of Zira. A scarlet thread. A red thread. Now there's a whole interesting study you can do in scripture looking up and following the pathway of the scarlet thread all the way to the cross. Because the scarlet thread in scripture tends to point that direction. In this case you've got a scarlet thread wrapped around a wrist. And what was it that happened to the wrist of our Lord but that he was pierced for our transgressions and the blood flowed out of his wrist. Gang, the scarlet thread connects these two boys not to each other or to their mother, but to Jesus. And this short story, I believe, is here because in their very names we see a picture of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. How so? Watch this. Again, the scarlet thread tied to the wrist is a type of the blood pouring from Jesus' wrists. And Jesus, who was born into life as a human being, was crucified and laid back into the womb of the tomb in the same way that Perez pulls back. Jesus comes out, he's born, lives as a human being, 33 years later, crucified, he's laid back into the tomb, supposedly dead. But a miracle happened. Like Perez, the first son to come out, Jesus broke out. Jesus committed a breach, if you will, in the law of sin and death. He broke out. Now, I forgot to tell you what zero means. Zero means literally a rising or dawning brightness. So what happens here is that Jesus broke out of death, rising in the dawning brightness of life. I'm absolutely convinced in looking at this that God is painting a prophetic mystery and he's using both of these two boys to do it. It takes both Perez and Zira to explain, to reveal the resurrection of Jesus, which is why, which is why both boys' names are listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 verse 3. Both their names. Now understand how unusual this is. The firstborn is the one named in the genealogies. And in every other case, in Jesus' own genealogy, it's all the firstborn. But listen to this, Matthew chapter 1 verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Both boys' names matter because both boys' names together are a breaking forth and a rising brightness. Which is what happened 
and the resurrection of Jesus. Four unlikely names in this genealogy. Perez, Zerah, Tamar is also there. We mentioned Tamar on Sunday. Then, in Genesis 38, her behavior is manipulative. It's deceptive. It's pagan. And yet God chooses to connect her to His Son, Jesus. And that's grace. That's grace. Tamar doesn't deserve to be in this lineage. But she's right there. Matthew 1, verse 3. After all the sin in tonight's chapter, the amazing thing in this little few verse story of Zerah and Perez and Tamar, their mother, the last thing we see is a picture of grace. But that's the way of the Lord. God grabs hold. He links us to Jesus by the scarlet thread of His blood. He breaks us out of death into life. And He promises us the bright rising when He calls us home. And so we will be eternally linked to His Son, placed in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Just like Tamar, just like Perez, just like Zerah, and, and, and just like Judah. There is not one good thing that I can find about Judah in chapter 38. Not one. He's a jerk. He's a bad guy. He treats poorly. He is concerned only with himself. And he is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If Tamar is in there by grace, Judah's in there by amazing grace. He shouldn't be there at all. But he is. For all of the mess. Flip over to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to end here. Because there's something else amazing about Judah. Incredible here. For all his sordid behavior, Judah, the person of Judah, kind of fades out of the picture. You're not going to hear anything else about him until chapter 49. You'll see him in a moment when he's being blessed. That's it for Judah's story. And yet, watch this. Revelation 5 verse 1. John is receiving this amazing vision and he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. And then I began to weep greatly. Because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Jesus, one of his own names, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah, this this sinner. This sinner like me. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, why is that a significant name? Because in Genesis 49, verse 9, as Jacob, as Israel is blessing Judah, he says, prophetically, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up. The lion's whelp is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus. And God allows Judah... To be the forefather of Jesus in his human lineage. Jesus comes through the line of Judah by Tamar through Perez. And that, that is amazing grace. It's amazing grace.